In this episode of the Tech Tidbits podcast, I sit down for a conversation with Tyler Lacroix, software engineer at Waymo, previously known as Google's self-driving car project. We speak about his journey from mechatronics engineer to a flurry of positions within the world of Silicon Valley, as well as his unique experience of being homeschooled until the beginning of undergrad. Our conversation in these areas was so insightful that we didn't even get to Waymo itself or the future of self-driving cars. So be on the lookout for a part two coming soon. If you wish to learn more about the work done by the team at Waymo, please check out their website or connect with Tyler directly via LinkedIn. If you enjoy this conversation, feel free to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for more episodes on the ubiquity, applicability, and future implications of artificial intelligence and technology as a whole. So without further ado, Here's my conversation with Tyler Lacroix. Yeah, I, the first thing I wanted to ask is that I saw you joined Waymo in about the summer of 2020, right? So what was it like coming to a company like Waymo in the middle of a pandemic? What was that experience like, the transition? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I think Waymo in particular has had a great onboard um, remote but I think transferring to any company, it's sort of strange that everyone I've talked to have never met in real life. Uh, but I think the one thing that's really cool about Waymo compared to some of the other companies I've worked on is that everybody is just so proactive. They love having cameras on, they love chatting. And like it, in general, I think Waymo did a pretty good job. And it's just, it's such a different culture here. I think people are, are such so in love with self-driving that it sort of uh, it just shows in the how they go about work too. Like people just love to to chat about it. So I think it would be even rougher to join. Uh, maybe not quite as a proactive team, uh, but yeah, I think um, it was a little um, hiccups here and there of ramping up. But overall, it was pretty good. Did they uh, do anything fun for your like uh, onboarding? Did they like let you ride in a Waymo car? <laughs> they like fun I wish, car? yeah. <laughs> So unfortunately, because of COVID, we stopped the like employee program to drive Waymos, but fingers crossed that's going to open up soon in Mountain View Bay Area. Uh, so that way I can actually, I still have yet to ride in a Waymo, which is so sad. I've been here for a yeah. year. There's like so many of them driving around Mountain View. Um, I think we have over 50 and I just like see them drive by my place all the time. But because of COVID um, in Mountain View area, our testing has been paused uh, for employees only. Uh, we have a fleet in Phoenix that's still live with the public, but I have yet to visit Phoenix. So um, one of my coworkers last weekend just visited Phoenix and he, he took a ride because he joined around the same time I did. He was like, oh, so much fun being actually like finally getting to in-person ride one. Uh, so yeah. I'm excited for my first ride. I can, yeah, I, that's, that's such a shame. They got to like let you guys do that sometime soon. But um, you're, you're, you mentioned before, like you're, you switched from Waymo, you've been to a lot of different tech, tech companies. Uh, I don't know if you want to like outline some of those beforehand and also like why you made the switch from, you work in a software engineering role now still, but in a different context, right? In the context of self-driving cars, which is different from everything else you've done. So yeah, you take us through that journey. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I interned at a few companies, um, Blackberry, then Mozilla or, or Firefox, if you know that, and then Facebook. And then I graduated and started working um, on Google ads, basically. And so throughout all of those companies, each one had a little bit of a different culture. Um, but I would say uh, Blackberry, it was really nice people, but it wasn't what I was passionate about. Um, I never really owned a Blackberry and I was working on like front end enterprise stuff. And I was not 
particularly passionate about front-end stuff. I think before I joined, I thought front-end was super cool because within a few lines of code, you can have something um, visual and it's great to like point and be like, look, I made this website, I made this. Uh, but yeah. for me, after working on that for four months over the summer, I got really um, tired of fixing little bugs here and there. I feel like, especially with web dev, uh, it just turns into like, Internet Explorer version seven doesn't work or something. So I was like, ah, I'm really bored of that. I, I don't want to keep just fixing these tiny bugs. So then uh, Mozilla, I worked on Firefox for iOS, which was kind of cool because it was app development, which uh, I had done a little bit on, on the side and it was Swift, which uh, I actually got to learn Swift on that internship and it was a cool language. And so it was cool working on both the front end and back end of that. But while I was working there, I sort of found myself enjoying the like backend work a little bit more um so then i went to facebook and then facebook they had this um survey of what i was interested in so i was like you know what i'm gonna do ml so i was like oh i, I just want to do an ml and then like app development website i was like no 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 so then luckily i got to work on um the search functionality inside of facebook so um basically something called type ahead search so on facebook.com or the app if you start typing in the search the um, um drop down list of search stuff so that was basically the team i was working on and i worked on like machine learning stuff for that so basically working on their pipelines for retraining and uh, just trying to find new features for it and to figure out where the models work well and where they didn't. So that was a lot of fun and I really liked that. And coming out to the Bay Area for the first time, it's like a whole new world, I feel like. Uh, it's really cool because they pay for your housing, uh, you get um, shuttles to and from work, they feed you all three meals and um, lots of activities. So um, I definitely love that. And then um, I had always um, loved Google because I was homeschooled. So. I learned a lot of my skills just by Googling random things. I was like, I want to learn iOS development. So then I just would Google it, watch a ton of YouTube videos and um, just try and copy what they're doing. And so uh, I wanted to work uh, at Google and that was sort of a dream. So it was cool to work there for um, about two years. And so I was working on ads there, working with um, uh, machine learning, but it was a good experience. And I learned a lot about how the ads business worked and how ML at scale works because especially on ads is one of the first movers as far as ML goes because they were using ML back in like 2006 or seven. And so they have such a historic um, run of using ML just because you get millions of queries per second. So there's no way you can manually tune everything. So it's almost all ML and there's like hundreds of models. So it was really cool to see how they uh, did it there. But then there was still a little part of me that really loved uh, mechatronics and robotics. So um, I was like, I, I was always itching to, to try that out. So it was really cool that it was a little easier to swap from um, Google to, to Waymo than any other self-driving because they share the same infrastructure. So um, I basically started interviewing uh, with a few teams at Waymo and then I, I picked uh, did the team on right now and stuff. Um, I've been here for about a year now and it's been um, a lot of fun. So that's sort of a little journey of where uh, I started and now where I'm at. There's so many things to tease apart there. The first is like, I mean, you went to Western University and you, you chose mechatronics, right? So when did you first develop a passion for robotics? And did you ever see yeah. yourself where you are now? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And I find one of the things I'm most passionate about is trying to automate away boring tasks. Even as a kid, like a 13 year old or something, 
I had always found it really frustrating to do like the same tasks every day that were really boring. And so I've always, I feel like one of the things is as when I was like 10, I basically was a, a, a paper, um, um, paper route boy. So, so delivering papers to a bunch of things. And that was a lot of fun, but uh, you learn how, a, how horrible it is trying to um, deliver paper when it's snowing out and raining out. And I was like, and to put together all the um, newspapers, it was a lot of manual labor. And so I felt like I've always loved to take a task that I do every day and try to automate that. And I think robotics is like the best example of trying to like fully automate something. Um, so I also tried to learn before university some electronic stuff and I always found it was really hard to, to learn that. So I thought mechatronics was a good um, degree in terms of you don't have to, like if you try to learn software on your own, you can basically code up an app with uh, not costing too much. Well, if you want to do electronics, you have to pay for lab equipment and circuits and it, it can become expensive very quickly. And I personally found for me, it was a struggle trying to learn that on my own. So um, I thought mechatronics had a good combination of trying to learn a little bit of electrical and mechanical while still not being too far away from software. Yeah, I just, uh, I actually just finished reading the book, Automate the Boring Stuff. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's, it's, it was an amazing book. There's so many, it's just crazy to think how many things that you can actually, you know, things that you just do over and over again that you can just, you know, it's, it's literally endless. But um, I'm, I'm, I was reading through your LinkedIn and, you know, your honors and awards section is pretty dense, filled with stuff there. So, you, I mean, it seems like you, you've bounced back between hackathons and, you know, more hardware based things. Um, I'm interested to know if you have any, any secrets, like, is it just, just a passion of yours? Like, they just like, you didn't feel like work, you just able to do it for really long amounts of time. How did you, you know, how would you able to find so much success in all these competitions over the years? Yeah, I find that. Um, the one thing that I try to practice a lot is basically um, trying to stitch together um, different components. And I feel like that is something that I have practiced a lot and I'm pretty good at. And where a lot of people are really good at just saying, here's one task and you do that task and you're like, hey, I'm done. But in general, a lot of the, even the hackathons I've done, like one of them was just trying to stitch together some um, VR stuff with some um, encoder stuff. And so trying to connect like software with hardware. Um, like there are a lot of people that know how hardware works and can do that. A lot of people that know how to do software, but um, a lot of people don't know the like combination. And I feel like my knowledge has always been good at like understanding enough about one thing to be able to connect it with another thing. And I think having mechatronics in general sort of gives you a very broad understanding of um, different components. Because um, I know one of our hackathons that we did was basically just trying to connect up a VR head headset with a, a bicycle. So we, in, we attached an in encoder onto the bicycle. And then we had a um, 3D video of someone um, um, biking. And then basically as you pedal faster, it would go faster. So really the coding was under 100 lines of code and the sensor was only one encoder sensor. But it's basically just like trying to stitch those together. Um, is hard um so i think just understanding like which tools are appropriate to connect them has helped there yeah, yeah i mean uh, that was actually the one you spoke was one i was going to ask about this uh the hack with the the vr and the, and the cycling um do you want to go a bit more into the high level of what that project was about and the inspiration for it because i thought that was really cool yeah yeah it, it was a fun project and it was basically um it was a hackathon project that was supposed to 
um, make exercising more fun. So if you imagine you have a lot of uh, stationary bikes and you pedal them and after a while you can become um, bored. So our idea was um, like um, um, Peloton now is fairly popular, although this was um, like a few years ago before that. Uh, but the idea was thinking like, can we hook you up to like a virtual environment where you can pretend to be bike? anywhere in the world so um, instead of just biking on, on your um, stationary bike looking around people around you like attach a um, a virtual reality headset to you and basically be able to select um, anywhere in, in, in the world and basically bike there uh, so the actual engineering part was a lot of faking it to you making it which was basically we found a bunch of um, 3d videos of different places in the world of people biking. And then we just attached it to, I believe, a Raspberry Pi um, and an encoder. So basically as you pedal faster and faster, it would basically speed up or slow down the um, video. And it was fairly easy to hack that together, but it actually, it felt like you were uh, biking because the encoder on the bike itself is fairly accurate. So it was pretty cool to sort of see that play out. And um, it was a, easy enough hackathon that it was under a hundred lines of code, but it did involve having to like figure out what in encoder was right and hooking it to, to the bicycle and then connecting it to the, the Raspberry Pi and then also having the um, VR headset figuring out how to connect it and to play a video and um, control the speed of it. So I believe we use um, Unity for that. So we just connected um, Unity with a 3D video, which, which we're rendering, and then just sped up or slow down the um, um, video, depending on how fast someone was, was paddling. Uh, I mean, I can't believe that was less than 100 lines of code, because that sounds like it would, I mean, I really guess it's this idea of like combining the best elements of different fields. And I think that's a really interesting point nowadays, you know, like Western is really famed for their dual degree program, this idea of taking two things that, you know, might not seem to go well together and, um, stitching them together to create like almost a jack of all trades. Um, do you see, do you see like that, do you feel like that's put you in a, a unique position or do you see it as a way of almost like jack of all trades, master of none? Like how do you balance those two things? And well, it seems like you've yeah. been able to do that. So yeah, that is, the, um, it, it's something that is hard to know if you're even doing it right. Like how do you balance um, jack of all trades versus um, just trying to like master one thing. And I think for a while during university, I was basically a jack of all trades and never really knew what my passion was because before university, I had done a little bit of coding, even on the side, but in the mechatronics degree, you don't even really take many coding courses in, in general. So it was four years just practicing mostly like electrical mechanical stuff. And so, um, it, I was always looking for what is my passion. And then internships were always a little bit easier to get in the, the software zone, but then I would do um, front end. I'm like, mm, don't really like that. Do some app stuff. And I'm like, mm, that's fine, but kind of boring. And so I was testing a bunch of things until I finally um, started to learn about AI. And I was like, oh, this is what is going to be like when I envision 10 or 20 years from now, this is going to take off. Like this is going to be the next revolution like an automation revolution and ML is just something that it's still right now just basically fancy stats but it's getting better and better every day and so it's really cool to sort of I think that has excited me to now where I've slowly become more of a master if you can say that uh, of ML just basically most of my job um, day to day is doing um, like machine learning stuff so I feel like 
almost everybody starts out pretty broad because nobody really likes or nobody knows what they like and it's hard to know what you're passionate about but um, I think the combination of A, I could see that it was a growing field and B, it, it was the next key to unlocking more automation uh, beyond just um, mechanical automation. It's basically how do we combine AI with um, mechanical and electrical stuff to automate out more boring um, activities that you, you do day to day. I think taking a step back is always really important. Um, I feel like at Google, one of the things that I was able to do well, um, which helped me um, move up was I, I would always try and take a step back from like, you're part of a team of like eight people, but usually when you're in this huge company, there are thousands of people. And usually your piece of software is gonna to talk to another piece of software and the inputs to your piece of software are developed by a different team. And so most of the bugs are actually in the, in between. Um, so if you're working on project A, project A is probably going to talk to project B. And so it's in between this where one team is going to make one assumption and the other team is going to make a different assumption. And between those cracks is usually where bugs happen, where team A assumed that team B would have, um, would deal with X or Y and team B thought that team A would deal with that. And so that is where I found quite a few bugs, which are actually usually only a few lines of code, but where the impact is really big. People are like, wow, it's um, cross team collaboration. Like, but it, it just sometimes taking a step back and thinking like, how does this system work at like a higher level? And un understanding that is how you can really make an impact. Uh, because most people just go go to work. Their manager says, make this, they make it, they ship it. They're like, I'm good, I'm going home. And so if you want to like go above and beyond, um, one thing that I've sort of found is just um, trying to look into those cracks, trying to understand the system at a little bit of a high level. And so um, being good enough to do your day-to-day -day job while on the side, just looking at a high level of the project being like, is there is there a crack that I'm not seeing or someone else isn't seeing? And so usually those cracks are high importance, especially in like automation systems, because it's basically just like plugged, like um, this piece is plugged into this piece, which is plugged into this one. And so usually it's a chain of things. Yeah. I mean, you know, most of the time when people think about like quantifying their achievements, it's, you know, you'd be happy with 5% increase in speed or efficiency or accuracy. But you know, we get to your, experience at Mozilla and I feel like this is an amazing tie into that point that you just said I'm looking at it right now <laughs> improved multi-tab performance by 39% and reduced memory usage by up to 32% so these are incredibly large uh, changes in efficiency and, and accuracy and you know, the, yeah that, how does that fit into what you just said with the smaller bugs was that an example yes, exactly of that? yeah like that that bug itself uh, the code to fix that was like 10 lines of code. It was basically just like one coder assumed that um, piling up a bunch of like views on top of each other was like the only way because someone else told them that. And basically when I was looking at it, I was like, hmm, it seems inefficient to basically um, draw a bunch of stuff all on top of each other. So basically if you think about like a view, which is like a picture or a, a website, um, there were just basically like, if you had 20 tabs, it would have like 20 views all on top of each other. And so it would basically, the um, web browser would be drawing uh, view one and then draw view two on top of it, draw that one. So basically the more tabs you're doing, it was rendering everything all at once. And so um, basically I was like, hmm, like 
inside of the um, web view, you can hide it. So basically you just say, okay, if we move to this tab, let's just hide the other ones so we stop rendering. And it's basically a really easy change, but no one's thinking about it because no one, uh, no manager is actually being like, you need to add this feature because it's just a tiny bug. And it's just some assumption that someone made and they're like, this is the only way to do it. And then they do it and it works, but sometimes it's, um, just taking a step back and being like, hmm, is there something that I, I'm missing here? Is there something that we could do to um, like modify how we render this? Or is there a different step that we could take? Uh, and I know at Google, um, like one of the things I helped improve was that one feature or one team was generating features. And so they assumed that the other team was going to filter out bad um, um, values while team B was like, no, they're responsible for features. So they should do all the, all the cleaning. But so it was just a miscommunication of two teams being like the other team is like cleaning up for bad values. And then it would just end up that a lot of our ads were showing to like the wrong people or something. So it wasn't like the website was breaking or it was, it was just a feature was, was bad, which was causing our ML models to not be as accurate as they could be. So then I basically was like, at a very high level, I'm like, well, who should be in charge of this? And then I talked to both people and then I was like, okay, well, you know, let's implement this fix in this person and like have them take ownership. And basically we're able to improve um, a few models by um, a couple percent, which as far as like Google ads go, they make a ton of money. So that was like a very big improvement to something that really was just um, talking to people and taking like a step back and just trying to understand how things work at like a very high level. Um, so I think that has helped me um, make improvements and fixes. And I think that's basically how I've been able to move forward is just taking a step back, understanding it and trying to see um, if there's a different way to approach this or if there's something in the crack that I can fix um, that no one's looking at. And usually that's where you can make a big impact for either internship or even full-time. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you apply to a job, there's roles, responsibilities, but how can you take those, go a step beyond and really make an impact that you can talk about? So it's, um, yeah, it's, I think yeah. people always think like, oh, maybe I'll just try and work on the, the task like 20% harder. And I think generally that actually doesn't, it's not as great as just spending, you know, a normal amount of time, get your tasks done. And then once they're, they're done, then just spend extra time looking at other things or trying to think about it from a high level. So I would take the approach of if someone says, okay, we're going to do like X amount of tasks over 12 weeks um, to not like just keep trying to finish everything as fast as possible and ask for more tasks. Once you finish your task, then just take a break and be like, I'm just going to find my own task. Cause I think as a manager, if you're like, if you have someone under you that can proactively like find a new bug, find a new thing and like fix it, that is the best way that you can really impress people around you to take that initiative. Because most people, um, they have a backlog of like easy things that they can work on. So if you're an intern or um, new grad and you just like keep asking for more, it'll be, you'll still keep fixing these little things, but um, it won't be as big of an impact as if you can come up with your own bug or your own thing. And then your manager will be very impressed because you can take that initiative and they can think, oh man, this person's already um, senior enough to like find their own things to work on. And that's how you can really impress people. Or that's how I found um, to really impress uh, managers or people to sort of take that extra step of instead of just keep asking for more things to do, just do what has been told of you. And then once you're done, just um, look and try and find if you can see something else that you can improve or rethink how it's done. But 
Yeah, I mean, I would recommend people to like go back and re-listen to that part because that that is like really truly amazing advice. It's not this idea of just you know going at the same thing harder and harder. It's like how can you work smarter? It's, it's such a cliche, but in this case, clearly it's more than that. Um, so you, as, as a more senior level person at Waymo, or, or at least in your career now, like you're not a new grad anymore. You are on the other side of the table as well, which is like you interview people, things of that nature. Um, so just out of curiosity, what is the biggest mistake people tend to make with their resumes that you see? Like the thing uh -huh. they can fix, yeah. The most common mistake is making it way too long. Um, I think having it more than one page is not great. And as like I have an intern now that I was looking through resumes and you only look at each resume for less than a minute. So I'm, I'm going to open the resume and look quickly. And if it's this long two or three page resume, I'm not going to go through all of it. And so I would say make the impact um, as short as possible because you can always have a um, LinkedIn profile that has all um, extra details or extra experience that you have. And so the resume is just a place to highlight. And I would say another thing is try and um, quantify everything. So if you just say like, oh, I helped work on this project, that doesn't stand out that much. If you say like um, 5% X, Y, Z, the number itself is going to catch the eye of anyone look at the resume and be like, 5%, I wonder what that 5% was. And then they're actually going to read that sentence instead of a block of text of just um, describing exactly how the project worked. And um, I think that will just make people um, not read the entire text of block. I would just have um, um, bullet points and just try to figure out the three or four um, bullet points that are most interesting that you can have a number for it because um, no matter what, if you have a number there, it's going to catch the eyes because usually the people looking at a resume are like engineering managers. So they have an engineering mind. And if you say any number like 5,000, if I see a number 5,000, like 5,000, what? You know, you added 5,000, you know, cores or, you know, fix, you know, 50 bugs or whatever. At least if you have a number, it, ca it catches your eye and at least makes you want to read that sentence. And then if you um, read it, then you'll, it might pique your interest. And so uh, one thing that I do to my resume, which is optional, is that I try to keep it as short as possible, but I include like a link to a video of it working. So if I worked on some app, then I would just say, I would just say, you know, this is what I did and here's a link to the video. And I think um, having a video is like worth a thousand words, obviously. So um, instead of just having this like two page um, resume that's kind of boring, just have a 30 second video of whatever you're working on. If you're working on a capstone or whatever, just try and film a little video of it working. And then it's easy as a hiring manager to be like, there's a link here. And I click on it, all of a sudden, bam, there's this video playing. And I'm like, this is a super cool project. Um, so I would just spend that little bit of effort. And I think I've had a lot of um, success with just trying to add a little bit of video and um, condense it as much as possible because you, you just want your hiring manager to look at it and be like, wow, this seems like an interesting person or it seems like a cool thing they've worked on. And that is enough to be like, yeah, let's give this person a shot of interviewing. And then to actually interview is like a different set of skills. But um, if you give them a block of text or two pages, then people are just going to be like, uh, I don't have time to read this uh, entire thing and just look, look to the next one. Um, so just keep it as short as possible and just highlight add numbers and um, links to either um, your LinkedIn or videos of some project you worked on. I think that um, has worked well for me. 
that makes sense. And I think the other piece is like, you know, a lot of times people will go through their entire internship sometimes, you know, as much as 16 months and only think about quantifying that like after, like it's, it's hard to remember what you've done day after day for over a year or even, even four months, even if you don't like write it down. So I've tried to get in the habit of like, even on a monthly basis, you know, think about what did I actually do this month? And if you can't think of anything, maybe that's a sign that perhaps, you know, you should speak to your man about setting better goals for yourself and quantifying your um, progress. Um, but yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point too. I think throughout school and particular doing in internships, um, almost every month during an internship, I would try and look at my resume and say, okay, like, because you're only on an in internship for three or four months, you don't know if you're going to come back. And so you have to always be looking out for the next role. So I would say just keep your resume up to date during the internship. And um, if you're a month or two in and you have um, zero bullet points for this internship so far, then it's like, okay, maybe I need to um, talk with someone else or need to think more about how do I, it, exactly what you mentioned, but um, how do you figure out a way to um, quantify it? Or if you have nothing impactful so far, then maybe talk to your manager and say, oh, well, I, you know, can I work on something else that you know, maybe is able to impact this or that? Um, so I would definitely keep that on your mind as you, you know, take on in internships. Yeah. And the other side of the interview pro or the application process is the, the interview. And I don't know, like as someone who has gotten into coding a bit later, um, the idea of a coding interview at first made a lot of sense. Like, okay, this is practical. You're, you're doing the coding. But as I looked into it more and more, it, it's almost, it's, it doesn't seem to be as, clear as it is because you know most of the time what you do in a coding interview what you prep for is not something that you'll ever actually well in some cases even need so i'm interested to know on the other side of the table how do they justify interviews like this is it the fact that it's easier to compare on a case-by-case -case basis between applicants and how, how do they rationalize these interviews that in some cases might not even be relevant to what the person is doing yeah, and I think we constantly at Waymo are trying to improve our interview process. Right now, we're very close to other big tech companies, which are these coding um, in interviews. And I think one thing that is important to almost consider is that what Google has said is that they try to have their interview process just weed out as many bad candidates as possible and they will sacrifice weeding out some good candidates if they can guarantee that the like true positive rate is really high. And that's because once you get a job at Google, it is very hard, if not impossible, to um, get fired. So they want to make sure that when they actually hire someone, they basically have a job for life. And so even if their project gets canned and they will just transfer to a new role, and even inside of Google, it's really easy to swap teams if you want. Um, so they try to make the bar very high and try to just make sure that no one can pass these algorithm um, problems if they aren't at least a certain level. So they try to balance off uh, the, the trade-off between like, do they use a different bar that maybe once in a while a not great candidate may be able to um, sneak in versus they, they found this specific um, way of interviewing has been able to weed out a lot of people that um, they deem as um, not a good fit. But. That definitely makes sense. And I guess it makes your achievements all the more impressive. Um, I mean, one thing with that, and I guess we're, we're kind of going back here, but is, you know, you mentioned that you were homeschooled, which to me is, is super interesting. I don't, 
to be honest with you, I don't think I know anyone else who's homeschooled. So what, what was that process like? What would a, a school day look like to you um, <laughs> in high school? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I was homeschooled throughout like elementary school and high school. So I basically wrote almost no exams um, um, before Western. So my day-to-day -day was very open. I would say in the young years, I was like, quote, homeschooled, which means mom, basically my mom would say, okay, you have to do X pages in this booklet or read this or do that. And as I got older into the teenage years, I, my parents sort of had a step back and it sort of allowed me to sort of do my own thing. So um, as I started to become passionate about um, like coding and engineering, they basically just allowed me to like make my own schedule, which involved like making little apps or building little um, hardware devices. And so, and then there were definitely some weeks where I just played video games for like a week straight and never left uh, the house. But <laughs> I feel like I have been someone that's always um, been able to hyper-focus on one activity. So whenever like a new game comes up, I love this game. I just like play that game for like a week straight. And then all of a sudden they'll hit, hit a switch where I'm like, I'm bored of this game. I, I finish it, I'm done. And then I'll move on to the next thing. So um, I know there were many months where I was trying to build um, little games and apps for iPhone. And so I just got so addicted to building them that I would just spend every day just trying to um, work on it and improve. And so um, I think I have done a lot of trial and error um, with engineering, just trying to build different apps and um, trying to learn those skills on my own. And I think the interesting or the nice part about being homeschooled is that um, I feel like I don't have a negative uh, negativity towards learning because I think I was almost unschooled in the sense that I was, I enjoy learning a new skill. And some people I talk to, uh, not all, but some percentage, they're like, oh, I just don't want to learn it. Like, I, I just want a job where I just like do the same thing every day. And I'm like, that sounds horrible to me. Like, <laughs> if I have to do the same task for more than a couple of weeks in a row, I'm like, oh, I need to automate this away. I need to, uh, because I want to be learning the next skill to try and um, improve. So um, I think it was quite a big change when I went to Western, um, having to wake up at a certain time. That was, um, that was the, <laughs> the biggest shock, having to like sit in a chair and just listen to someone talk for like many hours in a row. I'm like, oh, you usually I was able to just do whatever I wanted. So <laughs> that, that took, quite a few weeks getting used to. And um, writing exams was also another thing that um, took a couple weeks to get used to. But I think also um, I didn't have as much test anxiety as some people because I, I think as you go through grades one through 12, you go through so many years of writing exams that at some point people um, get burnt out of writing exams. So I only had four years of writing exams and now I'm done. And I'm like, I don't even look like it wasn't that stressful and it wasn't that negative in my mind because it was only like a very short period. Well, if I had written 12 years of exams before that and then I finally got it, I'm like, oh, I'm just done with this. Like I need a, um, a new thing to do. So um, I think it worked out well for me. The, the, tr the truth is like we've all been there. The exam, you have no idea what's happening two days before you cram. You're able to do well on the exam, but you forget it a week later. It's like, what was the purpose of doing that? Like, I can't remember <laughs> pretty much anything I did until 
as late as like maybe high school. Like I don't remember any of that. I don't remember being like particularly. I mean, I like I liked science. I like math similar to you, but the other stuff was all sort of just it was just there. And I thought of it as like this is this I'm going through the motions. I have to do this, but it's it's so interesting to see that um, that you took a different path and. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what your resume must have looked like in first year university where, you know, most people have their high school and their extracurriculars, whereas you probably had just had a page of side projects. Is that, is that the case? What, what was on your resume first year out of curiosity <laughs> to remember? Yeah, I was working on basically an app called Peg Grabbers, which was like a little video game, which was if you've ever played Angry Birds or Cut the Rope, it was kind of like a mix of those. So. Basically, my resume was just that app was that this app that I've been working on on the side, which I eventually um, released, but it was uh, that was basically my re resume was that plus a little other um, little things. Yeah, side projects. So um, my resume obviously did not have any high school or um, like elementary school because I didn't do it. So it's basically just a list of like little side, um, side projects. And I think that I actually got very lucky with because big tech companies love side projects. Like they have a fascination with um, you making any little app or website or little tinker bot thing. Um, so that worked very well for me. And that was actually just luck because I was never, um, I never really wanted to work for a big company. And I didn't even want to go to um, university because I was like, I'm just going to make my own company and make my own apps. And my mom was like, nope, you're going to university. So then I was like, ah, fine, I'll, I'll take mechatronics engineering. But um, for a while, I was like, I'm just going to like be an entrepreneur and uh, make some apps and some um, robotic stuff. Uh, so it, my life uh, turned quickly. But now I love big tech, so it's hard to, to go back. But yeah, they definitely treat treat their employees well. Um, it's, I mean, I still can't really wrap my head around that. Like, if uh, if someone were to to want to homeschool their child, what would your main piece of advice be to them as a parent, for instance? Yeah, I think it's good to start young, structured, and because having like a six-year-old or an eight-year-old just be like, do whatever you want. They'll probably end up watching a lot of TV. And, yeah. But I think you, the philosophy I would say for homeschooling is you start very structured. So you almost mimic kind of school as in you work during certain hours. And the one thing that I think was also nice is that my mom, um, she was never like, just you have to work eight, 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 eight hours a day. It was basically you had X amount of pages that I had to work in, in booklets or something when I was like eight. And so for me, I was always the type of kid that was like, okay, my mom would be like, you have to do, you know, a hundred pages in this book um, th this week. And I'd be like, okay, Monday and Tuesday, I'll just work all day and night. Like, like I, and then all of a sudden I would be done by like Wednesday and I'd have like Thursday and Friday off. I'm like, yes. So it was never like, um, I'm burning the clock. I was always a little kid that was like, I'm just gonna like punch out everything like as quickly as possible. And so uh, I think that mentality helped me a little bit because it was never like, I'm just sitting in class, just super bored, be like, oh my God, can I just go home already? It was. Um, like I was always just trying to like finish all my work early. So I'd end up just having like Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, just like working from morning to like night. And then once I was done all my weekly assignments, I'm like, I freedom and can do whatever I want. So, um, that was good. And I think as I got older, my parents, um, loosened up 
this structure a lot more as I was able to work on things. So basically, as they could see me working on like side things or like reading booklets on, on the side, um, they were like, okay, we'll just like let him like do his own thing um, more and more. And then by like high school age and late high school, they were basically just like, nope, he's able to uh, basically learn his own things. And um, so then I, I think a lot of people I talk to, they struggle with the leaving university and starting a full-time job because school is so um, linear. It's like, it's so easy to be like, I'm better than yesterday because I'm a day further through my, my program. And as soon as you leave university and you have a job, it's hard to know, are you on the right path anymore? And a lot of people um, struggle with that. And I think at least a little bit of homeschooling, I was used to that for 12 years or more, like until university, that was just how I lived my life. So it was only a four year period where I had a linear path and then I'm back to. So for me, that jump back was fairly natural while a lot of people, they finally get their first job at university and they're like, well, what do I do now? Like, is this actually the career I want? Do I jump to this one or this one? Because there's like infinite amount of careers and most people haven't really thought um, a lot about what they want to do or, or work on. So um, I think that was a little bit nice where I think I, when I was younger, I was able to like figure out what I think I enjoyed. And then from that, I like set my own career trajectory. But. Me personally, I've always been super passionate in education. I feel like it's like one of those industries that can be done so much better. And this this is just like popping ideas into my head of like the future of schools where everyone's just learning, like they're on their own learning path. They're still together. They can still socialize, but they're all doing you know what they really want to do with how much more productivity we can unlock by you know letting people you know, focus on the things that they love rather than constraining them to trying everything. Anyways, it's um, hard to believe, but we haven't even gotten to my questions on Waymo yet. <laughs> so I think we'll definitely have to do a part two if you're up for it at some point, yeah, at some point sure. in time. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely up for more sessions. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> the Tech Tidbits podcast is produced and edited by Cindy Wen with music from the Unicorn Heads. If you wish to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, check us out on our socials. Our Instagram handle is Tech Tidbits Pod, and our LinkedIn page is The Tech Tidbits Podcast. We hope to see you back here for the next episode, and until then, take care and all the best.